I'd get a, better get over my tears because this is a, an uncompromising uncom- passage that I'm going to preach. I'm looking forward to it. Verse 22, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, but, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last, last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus has left the synagogue. Last week we talked about Jesus healing in the synagogue. And now he's going on a little road trip. It says through the villages where he's teaching. Uh, We find that he continues to heal. He has plenty of meals. And yet we know that Jerusalem is the destination. Jerusalem looms large in Jesus' mind and in his heart because we know in Jerusalem He will not have a little meal. He will not teach. He will hang on a cross. I don't know how many of you are planning spring break or Easter road trips. I love those road trips. I love meandering. I think because we've been kind of all locked down, we think of our road trips and the destinations and the little, you know, villages. My wife and I love like Solvang with the little bakeries, the little piece of Europe in the middle of California. I love meandering on a road trip, but man, if I've got a destination, like a big meeting, uh, a ministry moment, if I'm getting to one of my son's football games, like ain't no meandering, I'm just getting there. And so it's remarkable that Jesus, knowing what's gonna happen in Jerusalem as it looms large, is so willing to meander, so willing to stop in little villages and have conversations with little people, and it it shows us the heart of God that there aren't any little people or little places in God's eyes. Every person is a person worth stopping for. Every town is a town worth visiting, even as Jerusalem 
looms large. And in this particular little village, Jesus is teaching and a guy interrupts him with a question. Lord, will many or few be saved? And Jesus actually answers, few. Will few be saved, Lord? Yes, few. Yes, few. Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Yes, few, few will be saved. That's a big answer to a big question. Just, just few will be saved. And, and Jesus has been teaching about salvation. In fact, the name Jesus is God saves. And so he says that the reason the Son of Man came was to seek and to save the lost. And he's been teaching that salvation is not just a turning from sin, it's a turning to God. That God just doesn't save us out of something, He saves us into something much better. And he's been teaching about the kingdom. And here he, he talks about the kingdom like, like a banquet. And Jesus is saying, actually, yes, you're gonna turn from sin, but what I'm saving you into is actually better than what I'm saving you out of. And so salvation is a repenting, but it's a turning to something better. In fact, someone better. And then he says, but, but actually many are gonna try and enter, but they're not gonna get it. Actually, only a few will be saved. And in saying that, he, he says something about our salvation that we've got to wrestle with today. He says that our, our salvation is sobering, that our salvation is surprising, and our salvation is sympathetic. Our salvation is sobering. Strive to enter the narrow gate, he says. For many will try, but only a few will be saved. Strive. And that word strive is, is an amazing word. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek word agonisthe, where we get our, our word agony. And it's an athletic term when an athlete strives to win the prize with lungs burning and heart throbbing. He's like that kind of agony. And actually in the language, he's not just saying, yeah, everyone should strive. This guy comes and he's kind of asking this hypothetical question, Lord, will many or few be saved? And it seems like he knows people need to be saved, this guy. It seems like he's pretty sure that he's gonna be saved, but just asking for a friend, Lord. You know, when we ask one of those questions, that's rarely for us, but just asking for a friend. And Jesus actually, in the Greek, it's a first person plural. In other words, you should in, in, the, in the English say, you strive. It's like he looks at the guy and says, no, you strive. And to everyone, you and you and you and you. Don't ask for a friend. You should be asking, will I be saved? Will I be part of the few? Don't ask for a friend, I'll ask for yourself. Now I know some of you who've grown up in church are saying, but, but how can we be striving for salvation? Because striving is a free gift of God's grace, isn't it? Is this Jesus saying, I must add some works to salvation? No, 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 he's not talking about that. He is not talking about striving as in trying to earn salvation. Dallas Willard says this, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. In other words, this is not about earning our salvation. This is about an agonizing coming to terms with what it means to embrace the free gift of salvation. 
Strive. We've got to sweat a little bit. We've got to strive a little bit. We've got to feel the lungs burning and the mind pounding. Why? Well, because there's the sobering call that salvation is a narrow door. It's a narrow door. And that requires a bit of agony because we would like to think that salvation is a wide door especially in our culture of relativism and universalism where all doors are equal. You pick your door. I've got my door, you've got your door. Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's not, there's not many doors, there's one door. And that door is narrow because it's a Jesus-shaped door. It's an actual Jesus-shaped door. It doesn't have room for Buddha and Allah and Confucius and Oprah and Joseph Smith and a little bit of self-help. It's not that big door where you just, oh, it's huge, you pick your way. No, 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 it's a Jesus-shaped door. An actual man, an actual Jewish man who lived an actual life, who died an actual death, who had an actual resurrection says, I am the door. I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the great banquet except through me. And that requires a little bit of agony. Oh, okay. Wow, Jesus, that seems pretty uncompromising. That seems pretty narrow. He says, yes, it's a narrow door. And you can say, well, that seems like it's like harsh. I wanna say salvation is sobering because if your friend is drunk and you say to them, I'm taking away your keys, I'm taking away your wallet, I'm taking away your phone, have a cup of coffee, I'm driving you home because actually you're gonna do some damage to yourself or someone else. You sound harsh, you're actually loving. And it sounds offensive in the moment, but you wake up in the morning really grateful for that friend. Salvation is sobering. Jesus is saying, I'm actually taking away your keys because you and I have got drunk on a culture of relativism and universalism and this is my truth, but this is your truth. And Jesus is just saying, I'm sorry, it ain't that way. It ain't that way. I'm the friend who's taking away your keys. And then there's more sobriety because he says that door, it's not only a small Jesus-shaped door, you come through me. He says, it's also a door that's gonna shut one day. In other words, it's not just gonna be open forever. He says, the master of the door has risen and shut the door, verse 25. In other words, he says, you and I have a door, it's a Jesus-shaped door, and it will be open for a door of opportunity, which is your lifetime. You don't have indefinite amount of time to walk through this door. And he's talking about those of us who say, no, no, I believe Jesus is the door, but, but, but later. One day when I've got no sense of adventure, no sense of lust left, when I'm ready to live a moral life, then I'll walk through the door. And he's saying, actually, many people will delay and will delay and will delay and then the door will be shut. Their life will end prematurely and then they will be outside and they will be knocking with their knuckles till their knuckles are bleeding until their voice is hoarse and he says, sorry, you missed your door. See, beloved, especially those of us who are under 50, one of the reasons why we don't walk through the door is that we don't believe salvation is a banquet. We have this idea of salvation as, well, okay, now I can't do the bad stuff that I like. 
But Jesus is saying, no, no, salvation is a banquet in the Father's house of the greatest mercy and peace and deep satisfaction. It took me years to recognize that. Remember as a 13 year old, just beginning high school, growing up in a Christian home like this, kind of familiar with Jesus, you know? And I got in with a circle of friends. They were kind of, they were nerdy friends. I was kind of the jock, but they were nerdy friends. You want nerdy friends, let me just tell you. Because the nerdy friends in the 80s became like the Bill Gateses of the next, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, nerdy friends were great because these guys, they had a contraption where they made a, a little distillery. We were 13 years old, distillery. And, they, and so we would rob our parents' wine and we would distill it into something much harder. And then we would sit and we would like gamble, you know, a couple of dollars and we would drink this neat alcohol. I was just like, I've got such cool, nerdy friends. <laughs> Amazing. And then I would hear, hear the gospel and it felt like it was just like, okay, well, I must stop that bad stuff and turn to Jesus because it's the right thing to do. I didn't have an understanding of salvation as a banquet. And it took me about three years at high school before I actually was so drawn to the banquet that I was willing to say no to some of that stuff. And I found myself in a tent much like this, three years later, 16 years old. And it was like a St. Patrick's Day feast, playing bad Irish music, drinking warm beer. And it suddenly tasted terrible. And I, I can, all I can say is I longed for the banquet. And I walked out of this tent. I lay down on the open field and I just say, Jesus, that stuff, it's empty, I miss you. And that was the beginning. I don't think it was even salvation. I put my faith in Jesus. But the beginning of realizing salvation is adventure. Salvation is satisfaction. Yeah, you've got to say no to some stuff, but that stuff started to feel hollow. And Jesus wants you and I to not wait too long before we realize what we saved into is better than what we saved out of. Yes. Amen? Yes. So he's saying, actually, you've got a door of opportunity. He's saying, sober up because actually... Not everyone who says they're going to heaven is actually gonna get there. These people were surprised. They said, but, but Lord, we, we ate and drank in your presence and, and you taught in, in our streets. I mean, we heard some sermons. We even had like the cracker and, and the grape juice. We, we ate with you. He's saying, depart from me. I don't know where you come from. Such an interesting one, isn't it? I don't know where you come from. That could mean two things. Firstly, it could mean actually your religious and cultural heritage doesn't mean anything to Jesus. It's not enough to be familiar with Jesus. You actually have to be in the family of Jesus. And he was talking to a Jewish audience who felt like, well, of course I'll be saved because I'm Jewish. But that also connects to you and I if we grew up in church. Well, of course I'm saved because kind of, look at my lineage. Grew up in a Christian home. And Jesus is actually saying, no, no, that, that doesn't actually mean anything to me. You need to know me. You don't just need to know about me. You need to know me. And so salvation is, is sobering. It's sobering. And, it's, and it seems like it's severe words, but these are actually the kindest words because what Jesus is saying is, it's not unrighteousness that keeps you out from the door. 
is familiarity. Say, so, yeah, I know you. I've heard about you. He's saying, no, 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 actually, if you don't walk through this door yourself, through your own faith, there's gonna be a moment, he says, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I love that word gnashing, don't you? Gnash. It's to grind your teeth. Why do you grind your teeth? Tell me, why do you grind your teeth? Stress. Stress and regret. Oh, I thought I was in, but I'm out. And what he says is there's gonna be real gnashing of teeth and regret because the door will be shut, but there will be a window and you will look in. You will look in and you will see people feasting, but you will be out. So salvation is sobering. It's a sober wake-up call. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. Wait, wake up, wake up, wake up. You got drunk on a sense of you've got unlimited time and any door, and he's saying, no, no, you don't have unlimited time and it's not any door, the door's me. Come through, come through now. I'll open it now, but you've got to come through. Salvation is sobering. Salvation is surprising. Where they say, but, but Lord, we, we ate and drank in your presence and you, and you taught, there's a protest of indignation here. They didn't get what they expected. What Jesus is saying is that people that were in the vicinity of Jesus assumed that because they were close in proximity, they were part of the family. You know, there's that wedding crashes line. Any of you know the movie Wedding Crashes? Well, they say to the guy, you know, keeps on crashing, you're like that crazy guest who thinks he's part of the family. Just because you're in the vicinity doesn't mean you're part of the family. And Jesus says, actually, those who are close, who ate with him, heard him teach, they'll be cast out. But those from the north, the west, the south and the east, people who are far off, not in the vicinity, they'll be there. And there'll be the shock and horror as you look through the window and see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are my heroes, but why are they inside? And, and why those people who are not even in the vicinity, why are they there? And it's talking about Jew and Gentile that Jesus' blood is to save all nations. Beloved, that's why we talk to issues of race because heaven is gonna be real colorful. People from north, east, south, and west will come. And it's not the so-called in people. In fact, the only in people are the Jewish people. All of us, unless we're Jewish, are out. And we're only in by the grace of God. North, east, west, south. I mean, heaven is gonna be incredibly cultural. We have an opportunity to model something of the kingdom of heaven here. In a very divided nation, the church is a glimpse of the culture of heaven, amen? That's why we take the risk of wading into controversial aspects because north, east, west, south is Jesus saying, my house will always be called a house of prayer for all nations. And actually those that thought they were in find themselves out. You ever been to a banquet or a wedding where you thought you were part of the reception and realized, man, I had such an epic worship leader fail. Sam. Uh, you know, I empathize if this has ever happened to you. But I, I conduct weddings now, but I used to lead worship at weddings. And I remember early on, probably 25 years ago, we do this wedding, I do the worship, 
this couple was in our church and I do this amazing anointed song during the <laughs> communion when they're doing the candle, unity candles or the unity sand or all that rubbish. <laughs> I mean, the communion's great, but that unity sand, I don't know about that. And I'm playing the song saying, listen to my song, don't look at the sand. Anyway, we go to the reception and I, I've got my glass of champagne, Ronell's got a glass of champagne and I'm just looking through the guest list and I'm like, well, let me, let me see if I'm at the bridal table. Mm-mm, no, <laughs> worship leader ain't at the bridal table. Maybe table two, no, not there. Table three, table four, maybe table five, maybe six, seven, eight. And I turn to Ronell and say, put down the glass of champagne and step away from the table. We're not invited. <laughs> And we did this like walk of shame to the car, you know? (laughs) Never again would I presume that we were invited. And what Jesus is talking to is this surprising sense that those who presumed they were invited actually were cast out. And those that presumed that they weren't from North, East, South and West, they were invited. It's, It's surprising too. Because in the midst of this, Jesus has this crazy little moment with the Pharisees. Now we know that the Pharisees were trying to kill Jesus. They were plotting to kill Jesus. But it says, some Pharisees came to Jesus at that very hour while he's teaching, I am the door. There's only gonna be a certain amount of time when you can open that door. I mean, pick the door now, don't assume. And then these Pharisees come and say, hey, you gotta get out of Dodge because Herod is trying to kill you. What a weird interruption. And Jesus just says, you go tell that fox. I love that. You go tell that fox. Jesus is so bold in this moment. Now in our culture, if we say you're foxy, that's a compliment. In this culture, not so much. You go tell that fox. To say Herod is a fox. In this culture, if a king was trying to kill you, you were as good as dead. King was all powerful. No, no, no human rights here. He just said, no, no, you go tell that fox. A fox biblically was a little disruptive, ineffectual animal. Song of songs, catch for us the foxes that are trying to ruin the vineyards in vine. Nehemiah 4, where Sanballat says, ah, oh, this wall you're building, even a little fox could knock it. A fox is like a disruptive, but really ineffectual animal. And Jesus is saying, you try and disrupt me, but you're really ineffectual. He is bold. And he says this, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. In other words, he's saying, you go tell Herod, when I'm done, I'll leave. But until then, you're a fox, get out of here. Those of us who like civil disobedience are like, yeah, stick it to the man. Stick it to the governor. And there is something for us to learn here that actually this is a moment of religious persecution. He's trying to kill the one who is healing people. Are you kidding me? Herod is trying to kill a man who is healing people. And Jesus is just saying, Until I finish my course, get out of here. Beloved, not every law that California passes is religious persecution. Let's just get that straight. 
When the governor asks the church to wear masks, it is not religious persecution. You might disagree or not agree, but it's not religious persecution. Ask our brothers and sisters in Iran and they will tell you what religious persecution is. Let's not call everything religious persecution. Little amen, little Presbyterian amen. But, but there are some things that come from those in power that are starting to feel like they're clamping down, calling the church to back away from some of the things Jesus calls us to. And we actually have to stand our ground in humility and with a spirit of submission, there are moments in which we have to say, I will finish my course. You are not gonna stop us from being faithful to Jesus, amen? Amen. I think as Californians, we need a little bit of this boldness. You go tell that fox. If every day we're saying, go tell that fox, that's wrong. But there are moments when we say, no. We, We had that last year where they asked us not to sing. And we said, we will wear masks, but you go tell that fox, we're gonna worship Jesus. And we did. And I think Jesus was pleased. There will be more moments, much more serious than that. Let's have a heart of submission, but moments of go tell that fox. Is that okay? Now what we see here, let me move away from that quickly. (laughs) Put your champagne glass down and move. What we see here is that his boldness is not ultimately about political revolution. And that's where we often miss it. He says, you go tell that fox, I will finish my course on the third day. What is Jesus talking about? He was talking about his crucifixion and resurrection. In other words, he was saying, I mean, you can imagine Peter, the apostle, ready for a fight. It's a good day for a revolution, Jesus. Simon the Zealot, good day for a revolution, Jesus. Come, let's, let's go get that fox. Let's cut his head off. And Jesus is saying, no, no, on the third day, I will finish my course. In other words, he was saying, in Jerusalem, there ain't gonna be no military revolution. There's gonna be crucifixion. I'm not gonna overthrow Rome. I'm gonna be overthrown by Rome. I'm not gonna kill Herod. I'm gonna be killed by Pilate. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to overthrow Rome. If I overthrow Rome, Maybe for a few years, the Jewish people will enjoy better life. But actually then another dictator will come. He's saying, I am not actually coming just to improve life. I'm not coming to make bad people a little better and good people a little better. I'm coming to bring dead people to life. It's not a good day for a revolution. It's a great day for a resurrection. Beloved, when the church loses, that ultimately Jesus' mission is about resurrection, not revolution, we knock on the wrong door. And I've seen churches, they get caught up in justice and caught up in the overthrowing oppression and they start banging down the wrong door. And I wanna be careful because I believe the gospel calls us to stand up against oppression and unrighteousness. But I, I've got close friends where in 1990, I mean, we gave our lives to fight against racism and apartheid. I'm so glad that it came down. But those guys just started bashing down that door. And eventually now, 30 years later, they no longer believe that Jesus is the only door. They believe justice is the only door. Please, beloved, be careful. As we stand up against oppression and injustice, don't start banging down the wrong door. It's resurrection that is at the heart of our faith. 
Jesus bringing dead things, dead people to life. Amen? We must be bold with that. Bold with that. So I'll land with Jesus' final little discourse here where he's been so uncompromising. I'm the door. It's a Jesus-shaped door. The door's gonna shut. You gotta come through the door now. I'm waiting for you at the banquet, but come through the door now. You yourself, not your dad, not your mom, you. And then he's talking boldly, bold action. I want us to see here that Jesus is saying, you come through the door, but Jesus is going through his own door, his own narrow door. It's a cross-shaped door. He's putting his preach into practice. And you say, whoa, these are hard words. What do I do with this? Jesus seems a little severe, a little cruel. Well, let's see where his boldness comes from. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? What we find is that Jesus' boldness is from the heart of brokenness. What a gift to see the heart of Jesus in this passage. We see that there is not one ounce of vindictiveness in Jesus. I'm just gonna slam the door in your face and we're gonna have a banquet in here and you're gonna be out there. Not one ounce of vindictiveness in Jesus. There is a broken, longing, lamenting heart. Oh, Jerusalem, I long to gather you. You who kill the prophets. Just just stop just for a moment here. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, the city that's gonna crucify him. The city that has crucified messengers of God every time before, but he still wants to gather them. Are you kidding me? What is the heart of grace here? What is the enemy love that we see here? This series is called Incomparable Jesus. There is no one I know who is so bold, who is so uncompromising, and yet so broken-hearted, compassionate, so relentlessly gracious. I just long to gather you murderers and you crucifiers. You say, I don't deserve to come through the door. Neither did Jerusalem and Jesus longed to gather them. This is what I've done. This is why Jesus can't accept me. I've been a drunkard. I've been a sex addict. I've been all sorts of terrible to my family. I can't come in. How about Jerusalem? And Jesus longed to gather them. And then Jesus uses a metaphor that just blows me away. He compares himself to a mother hen. Brothers, dudes, we've got to come to terms with this because Jesus was a man and God is a father, but he actually compares himself for a moment to a mother. Why? In fact, he compares himself to one of the most sacrificial kinds of mother in nature because he's showing 
that his heart is ultimately nurturing. And his heart is ultimately to take the fall that we might have life. You ever watched a mother hen in a farmyard? I mean, you can have your tiger mom, a mother hen over her chicks. You don't come near that mother hen. A mother hen, when it gathers its chicks under her wings, is saying to everything and everyone on the farmyard, you wanna come to my babies, you come through me. Mother hen is fierce. And Jesus is saying, when you come and shelter under me, anything that tries to kill you, tries to harm you, will come through me first. And that's ultimately what he did on the cross. He said, my children, sin and Satan and death and the fullness of the, of, of the world has assailed them, has assailed them, has assailed them. Well, I wanna tell you, anyone who shelters under my blood, under my cross, it will come through me and shelter them. I read of this amazing park ranger story after the California fires last year, who found a big burnt, carcass of an eagle, a mother eagle. And he was so devastated. Oh, the fires have killed this eagle, burnt to a crisp. And he lifted it up and under its wings were these little eaglets who were alive. What a picture of Christ on the cross. I will be singed to a crisp by the flames of sin and you will live, but come and shelter. Come and shelter. And I don't know how it works that Jesus says, I longed to gather you, but you were not willing. I don't know how that works. But one thing we know, Jesus is not a helicopter parent who chases you around the farmyard, says, you must, you must, you must. He's saying, I'm longing to gather you. I'm waiting, my wings are open, but you must be willing. Not gonna force myself upon you. What's that cheap trick song? I want you to want me. And my kids are cringing. (laughs) But there's something in the heart of Jesus that says, I want you to want me. I don't know quite how it works because I believe God is sovereign in salvation. He says, you did not choose me, I chose you. I predestined you to be saved. I believe in that stuff, that's the Bible. But there is something in the heart of Jesus that will not force himself upon you, that will not force you to shelter under him. He wants you to want him. And he will sit in the corner of the farmyard, wings open saying, come, come, come. But it requires agony. It requires that you and I realize, huh, I can't save myself. I can't protect myself. What is stopping you from sheltering under Jesus' wings, from going through the door into the banquet? It's often self-sufficiency. Sometimes Jesus will allow you to reach the end of yourself. Me too. So that we humbly come. I'm not the rooster, I'm just a little chick. I need shelter. When we shelter under His wings, the fires of hell, the fires of sin, the fires of Satan, 
will touch him, but we will live. Willingly surrender and live. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, we, we thank you that you care enough to tell us the truth. And Lord, we confess that we need sobering up because we bought into the lie that every door is okay. But we hear you say, no, I am the narrow door, come through me. And we know, Lord Jesus, there's a banquet on the other side. So we humble ourselves and we strive ourselves to enter this narrow door. We thank you that you are hospitable, that you are longing, that you are welcoming. I wanna ask you, if you have been delaying going through the door, saying, one day in the future maybe, that you would recognize today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And perhaps you've walked through that door before, but you've realized, no, I've been sheltering under my own strength, own self-sufficiency, and man, the farmyard has proved me wrong. I'm going to shelter again under Jesus because I'm pretty weak and feeble. I need His protection.